Let's, uh, one last time this morning, let's, let's pause for a word of prayer. Father, we do desire deep in our hearts to grow in grace. Lord, that our lives may give you glory today, now, and forever. Lord, this morning it is my prayer that, that uh, your glory will be lifted up, your honor will be held high as we sort of have a family talk this morning as a college campus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This morning it was uh, part of the program that I was to come up and introduce the third and the last person, student, who would be speaking to you this morning uh, as a part of our Spurgeon Fest. Uh, I'm not going to be doing that this morning, and the reason that I'm not going to be doing that is because the person that was scheduled to speak, uh, he and I had a meeting with uh, another person on my staff this past Friday, and after discussing some issues that are going on in his life, uh, he elected, and I think rightfully so, to eliminate himself from being here this morning. And uh, what I would like to do this morning is to ask you to pray for him. It is his desire that he'll be a man of integrity, that he'll be the person that God can continue to use in ministry as he continues to seek that out in his life. And, uh, and I know that you will want him to be that person as well. If you do not know who it is, that's fine. I think that the tendency is right now is to, is to be asking yourself, even if I've just shared this little bit, um, to be asking yourself what's going on. You're filled with suspicion and inquisitiveness. And, uh, and I just ask, if you don't know who it was, it's fine. If you know who it is, pray for him and uh, as a friend and to come around him and to love him and encourage him. But what I am going to do, and I think it is appropriate that we do this, uh, I believe that this has given us as a college campus one last time to just kind of look in the form of a sort of a quick Bible lesson this morning at the issue of how do we respond when a brother or sister is caught up in sin. You say, well, Dave, we talked about that all year. We start out wild talking about that. We start out the, the school year in chapel talking about that. And school's over. Why talk about that? And the reason I think that's appropriate, not only because of this situation, but restoration is not just in the, a distinctive of the Master's College. It is at the core of what it means to be a genuinely committed Christian. And when you leave here in just a few weeks, what we have tried to encourage you to do from preaching in chapel, from the teaching that you received in the classes, from the modeling that hopefully you've gotten from our staff, you will continue in, hopefully, as you go to your homes, to your jobs, to your new ministries, to, your, to whatever walk of life that you're going to pursue after, after graduation in a few weeks. And so what I want to do is this is, I'm not going to really preach to you, but I am going to give you a little quick Bible lesson in the short time that we have on how do you and I respond to a brother or sister who is caught in sin. Now to do that, what I'd like you to do is turn to Galatians chapter 6. As we take the opportunity to one last time be reminded of a very serious and essential responsibility that we have in the Christian life. You know, if you took a quick survey, which I did uh, this weekend, of the writings of the Apostle Paul, it's remarkable to see that every single letter that Paul wrote, he includes in it somewhere instruction to Christians on how they should respond when another Christian falls in sin. Without exception, every single letter Paul wrote addresses that issue and that subject. And in, in just a quick survey fashion, while you're there in Galatians chapter 6, in Romans chapter 12, Paul says to the believers in Rome, when someone treats you with evil, when they sin against you, 
he instructs them, do not return evil for evil. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, a passage that you're very familiar with, Paul says, when someone falls in sin, don't ignore it, as you are currently doing, as he implores the Corinthians to, rather than ignore it, to move into the person's life. In, Roman, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, he says, when someone falls in sin, don't take it to the unbelievers and to allow them to serve as judges between you and another Christian. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, many people believe that this is the continuation of the issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says to the believers there, if you're going to approach and confront and uh, teach and instruct a person who is entangled in sin, don't be overly harsh. Don't be a person that is unforgiving. Don't go too far in the rebuke and the exhortation and the admonition that you give them. In Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32, Paul encourages the Christians there in Ephesus to be forgiving. And when someone has fallen in sin, don't allow yourself to be filled with a spirit of unforgiveness. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, as Paul deals with a very specific situation there and names names, he says, I don't want these people when they are sinning against each other to fight and for the church to be filled with contention. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 24 and 25, Paul says, the wrongdoer should feel the consequences of the wrong that he or she commits. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, Paul says, Admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 and 14, Paul says to the, about the disobedient, For us who are obedient, not to associate with this person. That as they continue in their obstinance, and as they continue to shun confrontation, and as they continue to show a heart that is, that is unresponsive to the teaching of the Word of God, Paul says you must disassociate yourself from that individual not as a form of, of, of humiliation and not as some form of, of injury, but as another way of encouraging this person to bow the knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. In verse 13, Paul, in that same passage, in chapter 3, 2 Thessalonians, Paul encourages the Christians in the midst of all of that not to be weary in well-doing. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11, Paul says, Prescribe and teach those who err who are either entangled in sin in their own walk with the Lord or who are teaching things that they ought not teach. They're inconsistent with the Word of God. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, Don't be harsh when rebuking an older man in the Lord. As he gives specific instruction on how a younger man and how a younger lady are to approach an older man and an older lady in the Lord. In chapter 5 of the same book, verse 19, Paul says, Don't be too quick to confront an elder. Be very careful in how you do that when an elder is accused of sin. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24-26, through 26, Paul says that the servant of God in confronting sin must not be a person who is quarrelsome, but rather should be a person who is kind, able to teach, and even patient when they are wrong. In Titus chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says, Reject a factious man. Don't associate with that person. Because a person who is filled with a, div a divisive spirit is a person that is very dangerous to the cause of Jesus Christ and must be treated very directly and very seriously and very quickly. In Titus chapter, or in Philemon chapter, verse 8, Paul says that I could tell you what you ought to do in responding to the failure of this individual, he says to Philemon, but I know that in your heart you know what you should do and how you should restore this individual and how you should respond to this individual who has sinned against you. That quick survey, I believe, leads us to three very, very obvious conclusions. Number one, you and I will always have around us people 
that are engaged in sin. It's just a fact of life. When God saved you and brought you into the body of Christ, He didn't join you to a group of people that are sinless, no more than you and I are sinless. And as we continue to function in the midst of that community of believers, whether it's in a Christian college, whether it's in our neighborhood, in our own family, in our church, we become aware almost on a daily basis, certainly a weekly basis, that there are people around us that are part of our community that we have a relationship with that have become entangled in sin. It's just going to be a part of your life. Not just a part of your life at the Master's College. It was a part of your life before you came to the Master's College, and it will certainly be a part of your life after you leave here. You're going to know about it, just as I know about it. And the second obvious conclusion is, not only are we going to know that people are in sin, but that Scripture makes it very, very clear that you and I do not have the luxury, so to speak, I guess on the human level, to ignore it, to do nothing about it. Scripture is very clear that when we are given knowledge of someone who is in sin, that we have a responsibility to respond to that in a Christ-like way. On Friday morning, as I was starting out my day, I was sitting in my office and and, uh, received a phone call. I was in a meeting with Betty, and Betty and I were interviewing a a nurse for next year because Tony Nolan, uh, sadly to say, is going to be leaving us. And uh, the nurse is a key position for us, as, as you, I'm sure, can well imagine. And we're just sitting there, we're having an interview, and, and sort of a normal Friday. I've got my day scheduled out. Uh, I've got my wife's birthday is Friday, and I've got a schedule to take her away, surprise her for the weekend, take her to a hotel. It's just going to be a normal day for me. And then I get a phone call out of the blue that one of, the, one of my staff wants to talk to me, one of the RDs. And I said, well, send him down. I've, I've got a lot of meetings this morning. I'm in the middle of this interview. And I said, can he, can he come later? And Kelly said to me, no, he needs to talk to you right now. And I said, well, send him down in 15 minutes. I'll step out of the interview and, and talk to him. So he did. So I'm kind of on a Friday morning. Fridays are good days for me. I mean, I'm like you. I mean, it's like we're going into the weekend. i got this great weekend plan with my wife in this hotel, and, and this is going to be fun. And, and uh, I'm excited about the, uh, well, not just, well, okay. <laughs> Guys are terrible. Terrible. Well, look, think what you will. <laughs> okay, but anyway, because we're taking our bicycles and we're going to be riding bikes and all this type of thing, going to dinner. And I was looking forward to the weekend. So, and I'm my day is no different than yours. I mean, we're made of the same stuff, and we're planning on having a fun weekend and a great time. And and the staff member comes to my office, sits down, so sits down with me in my office, and uh, starts telling me, says, Dave, I just came from talking with a student who was involved in sin. It's like you're sitting there and you're going, now what do I do? And I do the same thing you do. I stood up and walked to the window and just kind of stare blankly and think, now what am I going to do about this? This is a student that I know, a student that I respect, a student that I love, appreciate, and has been caught in a sin. And everything in me at that moment wants to turn around to my staff member and say, I'll tell you what, let's just pray for him right now, you go back and let's forget about it. That's what I want to do. And I, and I know that's what you want to do as well. And I know, though, that... It, that if I am to be faithful, not only to the Lord, but if I'm going to be faithful in loving this student the way that God has called me to, I can't do that. 
And even my staff member wouldn't let me in if I tried doing that. If I said to him or her, no, just forget it. We know about it. Let's pray for the person and let's, let's just go on. I can't do that. I've come into knowledge of the person's sin and I know that I have a clear responsibility in Scripture that I've been given and you have a clear responsibility in Scripture that you've been given that when you come into contact with that information, you have to respond in a loving way to that person. And the third conclusion I think that all these passages lead us to is this, is that not only do we know people like that, not only do we have come, come into contact with it ourselves and have a responsibility to respond to it, thirdly, and I think it's very clear from just reading all this, a lot of times we don't do it right. A lot of times we don't. You don't do it right and I don't do it right. And the believers in the first century didn't do it right either. Hence Paul, every time he sits down to write under the inspiration of the Spirit, addresses that subject. Because there are going to be people like that, you're going to have a responsibility to respond to them, but you know what? You're going to do it wrong sometime. And I need to tell you, Paul says, how to do it right. You know, the, the proper response to doing it wrong in responding to a person's sin isn't to not do it at all. The proper response is to do it right. It's sort of like a friend of mine, when I was in college, we went to his house for, for dinner one night and as we were sitting there, we, it was time for the prayer for the meal. And, and he bowed his head, and we all, or I bowed my head, and was waiting on him to pray. And, and he bowed his head and then lifted his head and said, let's eat. And I said, well, I have to do the prayer. And he said, well, you know what? I've really been struggling with my prayer life, and I don't feel like that I do it with the right motive. I don't feel like I pray right, and so I've just decided to stop praying. Well, that was an interesting way to handle that. And sometimes I think that's what we think is the right response to our struggle with responding in a loving way when a person's in sin. You struggle with it and I struggle with it. You've done it wrong and you've had it wrong, done wrong to you, haven't you? I have. I could spend the rest of the time that we have this morning just talking about all the different times that someone handled it in the wrong way, either in the way they handled it or in the attitude with which they handled it. But again, the Scripture doesn't allow us to say, well, just because we do it wrong or someone else did it wrong, we just don't do it. It's going to happen. You have a responsibility and we're going to do it wrong, and therefore we need to continually be drawn back to the Scripture to be instructed again and again and again on how to do it right. And that's why we come to Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, where Paul tells us three very simple truths about what to do, how to respond when a brother or sister is caught in sin. And just as a quick context, the book of Galatians is a very, very important book in the New Testament. Uh, many people believe, that if you read a commentary or any commentaries on the book of Galatians, that this is sort of the, the foundational book to the Reformation. This is a key book. And it wasn't just key to the Reformation, and it's not just key to you and I today. It was key in the first century because as the gospel began to spread away from its roots in Judaism into the Gentile world, it was very important that the gospel, that the church, didn't just become another sect of Judaism or become infiltrated with paganism. And so to protect that, Paul wrote the book of Galatians under the inspiration of the Spirit. And if you were to outline this book, it's very simple. Because the subject of the book, the theme of the book, is genuine, genuineness. In chapters 1 and chapter 2, Paul talks about the genuineness of his apostleship. In chapters 3 and 4, Paul talks about the genuineness of his gospel. And then in chapters 5 and chapter 6, Paul talks about the genuineness or the genuine 
understanding of spirituality. What is genuine spirituality? That's how the book is outlined. Genuine apostleship, the genuine gospel, and genuine spirituality. And as Paul begins to discuss genuine spirituality in chapter 5 of Galatians, he explains to us, as he explained to the believers in that day, that genuine spirituality is seen in the fruits of the Spirit. As you and I evidence these things in our lives, which are Christ-like qualities, people can see in us and we can see in ourselves genuine spirituality. And that's sort of, that's sort of the way he begins that subject in chapter 5. But that was, that's sort of the general description of spirituality. And then he comes to chapter 6, and he says, now let me be very specific. If spirituality means the fruits of the Spirit, specifically, you and I should evidence the fruits of the Spirit in two circumstances. One, when a brother sins. Two, in how we handle our temporal, monetary, or physical possessions. That is very interesting. As Paul's talking about what is genuine spirituality, he says, you know, there are two key things to look at in your life. One, how do you handle the stewardship of relationships and how do you handle the stewardship of things? And if we were to really kind of put your life up in front of everybody and to try to examine you and to see if you're genuinely spiritual, those are the two areas that we would go and we would pursue. Well, what is this person like in their relationships? And what is this person like in the way they handle things? And that's exactly what Paul does. Well, we're not going to talk about the things this morning, but we're going to look at what he says about the relationships. Now, let's, let's read the first five verses, and then let me just lift out for you three things that Paul says to you and I about how we should respond to a person who is caught in sin if you and I are to be people who are genuinely spiritual. Brother, if any man is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear another one, uh, another's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one, each one shall bear his own load. In Galatians chapter 6, Paul is addressing one class of sinner that is to be distinguished from another class of sinner that he addressed in other places. Paul says there are at least two types of people that get involved in sin. One is the person who premeditatively enters into it, plans it out, plots it out, is characterized by it. It's a person whose lifestyle seems to be reflective of a sinful pattern. And when Paul instructs the church on how to respond to that person, such as in 1 Corinthians or in 2 Timothy or in 1 Thessalonians, Paul says that the tendency of the church in responding to the person who premeditatively sins is to be overly harsh. You and I tend to be overly harsh. And when Paul instructs the church on how to respond to the person who premeditatively sins, he says, don't be overly harsh. The second class is what's found in this passage, the person who is caught in a sin. And the Greek term that is here has the idea of taken before. In other words, this is an individual who didn't premeditatively sin, but because of his own fallenness that is still there and present in his life even though he knows the Lord, and because of the temptation of Satan and the powers of the circumstances around him, this person enters into a line of thinking and decision-making that catches them up into sin, not that they're somehow not responsible for it or absolved from any, any culpability, but they are caught before they even realize it. That's the person Paul's talking about. 
And most likely, in the broad context of Galatians here, this individual probably was a leader. Someone that would have the reputation of not being a sinful individual, not being a person who's, who's known for a pattern of sinfulness, but a person who's not known for that at all. A person who is tripped up and finds themselves engaged in a, in a sin and, and falling prey to a temptation without premeditatively entering, in, entering into it. And the tendency, it's very interesting, on the part of you and I when we face that individual is to, is to feel superior. And that is what Paul warns us against. It's interesting that he's not warning us against being harsh. And he's not warning us against many other things that he does in other places that I just read to you. But when someone is caught in a sin, you and I have a tendency to be lifted up in pride and self-righteousness. And I think that's very instructive for us as a Christian college because most of the time, that's the situation that you and I deal with. Most of the time, we're not dealing with individuals who are on this campus, although there are, they are there, you are there, and I think there, you are a few that live a pattern of outright bold sinfulness. But that's very infrequent and very few in number. Most of the time, what we deal with is a person who has the reputation of being a pretty good guy or a pretty good gal, but gets involved in a sin. And when you and I respond to that, our flesh sort of tempts us to take the spiritual high ground with that individual. And we sort of use that as an opportunity to establish our own spiritual superiority. And that is the situation where Paul says, you and I must resist that. Look at ourselves, take inventory of who we are before we enter into the confrontation. Let me tell you the three things that he says in this passage. Number one, he says, if a person is caught in a trespass, a hypothetical, but very real hypothetical, you who are spiritual, restore him. Very simply, Paul says, number one, what do we do when this occurs? And very clearly and succinctly, he says, our responsibility is to respond with a desire and the effort to restore this person. And you've heard in chapel many times, I'm sure, over the years that you've been here, that's a very interesting Greek term, the word restore there. It means to mend a net, it means to set a broken bone, it means to outfit a ship for passage. And all of its meanings, however, there is one common idea, and it is this, that there is something that was created for a purpose, it has been damaged, and it needs to be made whole again. And that's the idea that Paul is conveying to us. When you and I come into contact with a person who has been caught in a sin, our heart should respond with a desire to restore that person. Not to beat them down, not to hurt them and to damage them, not to humiliate them, but to build them back up, to, to do what we can do to put them back in a place of wholeness where they can continue on in the purpose that God created them. That's what we should do. The second thing Paul says, not only what we should do, he says, who should do it? And he uses a term that causes us a lot of trouble here, and he, and he describes that individual as you who are spiritual. And it really shouldn't cause us a lot of trouble because he's talked about that subject in chapter 5 of Galatians. And all he is meaning is, you who are the person who is living out a life that is committed to the Lordship of Christ, approach this individual. That's it. It's no, it's no big super class of people. 
He's not saying that there is a paid staff or that there is a super-duper discipleship class that should approach the person who's in sin. He said, just if you're a person who is trying to live out in your life Christ-likeness, if you're committed to seeing the fruits of the Spirit dominate who you are, then you are the person who should approach this individual. And the assumption is of chapter 5 that all of us are that way. That all of us are committed to those things. And it would only be a person who themselves is in sin that would not be committed to that. And so Paul really is saying all of us who have the desire to respond to people in a Christ-like loving way should be committed to this restoration. That's who should do it. So the what should be done is to restore. The who should be doing it is all of us. How it should be done, Paul says, in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. And what Paul is saying here is, before you go do it, and you must do it because you have the responsibility given to you by God to do it, look to yourself. And again, the term that he chooses to use there is is in the present tense, and it's a very strong term that really means for you and I to take very close, strong, serious inventory of where our motives are and where we are in our own walk with the Lord. Because when we go to this person, we shouldn't go until you and I have sat down and and realized and been confronted with the, the truth that they're made of the same stuff that I'm made of. And that's hard. Because again, the tendency is that when that person trips in sin, I want to feel like they're different from me. Somehow they're inferior to me. And Paul says that is not the case. In fact, if you think you are something when you're nothing, nothing, you have deceived yourself. You're no better than this individual. Everything that this person has that is true of them is also true of you. And it may be different in this particular case that you've not tripped up, been tripped up in this sin, but that doesn't mean that you've not been tripped up at other times in other sins. And that's a hard one. In fact, what happens a lot of times when you and I take inventory at that level is that we, we feel like, you know, because I'm not perfect, we sort of take this quasi-spiritual stance and say, because I'm not perfect, I'm not going to confront this individual. Because I do struggle myself. And the Apostle Paul, again, doesn't give us that opportunity. I have never, ever, even the students that we talked to Friday, I've never talked to a student that I felt like that the subject that I was confronting was totally out of my personal experience. In every single case that I can think of as I'm standing here, when I have talked to a student about their sin, I have found in me either this experience of that in my past or the struggle of that in my present. And you do the same thing. And when Paul says, take inventory and take heed to yourself, he's not saying, look at yourself and when you find sin, don't go. He's saying, look at yourself and realize that that person and you are made of the same stuff. And when you realize that, and realize your own capacity and your own potential for being tripped up in sin, it will cause you, when you go, and he's assuming you will, that when you go, you will go in a spirit of gentleness. I was talking to a staff member uh, who isn't on our staff, uh, the student life staff, but in another department on the campus, and as he was explaining to me what he is concerned about for the Master's College, he said, Dave, the thing that concerns me most at the college is that students are encouraged to confront and to restore, but so often they do it wrong. And so often they communicate a spirit of superiority. And I said, you know, that doesn't surprise me. 
because the Christians in Paul's day had the same problem. In fact, the leaders that Christ brought around him had the same problem, did they not? The disciples had that problem. I've got that problem. It is really a great opportunity for the flesh to establish its own value when someone else falls in sin, particularly when someone falls into sin that is considered to be a person of some, some stature. Of course your flesh is going to wrestle with that. I wrestle with that, and you're going to as well. And you're going to always wrestle with that. So having that problem on this campus doesn't surprise me. I think it's something that we're always going to face whenever there's a group of Christians around. But the solution to that problem isn't for us to stop doing it. You understand that? The solution to that problem is to go before the Lord and to humble ourselves and in meekness to realize that I am the same kind of person this is. And while I want to be a loving, faithful individual and friend to this person, and I will go to them and confront them in their sin, I am not going to do it with any attitude or spirit of self-righteousness. Um, I never quote our president, but since he's out of town, uh, and I won't give him this tape, I'm going to quote what I think is a very profound word that he has to say on this subject. It says, It is worth being reminded that the pursuit of holiness can be perverted into self-righteousness and proud piosity. No sin does greater damage to the church or is more offensive to God than self-righteousness. Jesus' most scathing rebuke and warnings were against the scribes and Pharisees, whose very names were synonyms for hypocritical self-righteousness. Nothing undermines true righteousness so much as self-righteousness. Holiness must therefore be that true holiness that is manifested in meekness and is credited completely to the grace of God and to the work of the Spirit in the Word of God. And he writes that as a part of his commentary on Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Young people, let me just leave you with this one last word. You're going to be surrounded by sin and God calls you to deal with it and respond to it. And your flesh is going to want to use that to lift yourself up. And the Bible calls all of us in meekness and gentleness to go to the brother and to the sister in privacy and in tenderness and in care, restore them. And it is probably the greatest joy in my life to see that process work. And when I sit in just a couple of weeks of graduation, Betty and I usually sit together and we watch the students walk across the platform. We watch you walk across the platform. And I sit and I think in my mind, man, I remember the freshman year when we dealt with this issue in this guy's life. What a joy it is to see how God has restored and brought this person back to wholeness and to health. It's a thrill. And if you've ever had anybody extend that ministry to you, you know how exhilarating it is to have someone love you enough to come to you and say, Brother, sister, I need to talk to you about what's going on in your life. And those things ought to be an encouragement for you to do the same. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you and we love you. Lord, it is... uh, a great burden that you lay upon us to represent you to a dying world and a lost world and a hopeless world. And Lord, we want to re- represent you with the words of our mouth and give you witness and praise with our singing and, and our worship. We also want a witness of your lordship and your fellowship with us by the honesty and the integrity with which we conduct ourselves in our jobs. But Lord, beyond all of those is the opportunity to witness to the to the world, 
by loving one another. In the words of Francis Schaeffer, he says that you have given the world the right, God, to judge the truthfulness of our profession by the way we respond to one another. The world shall know that we are your disciples if we have that love. And God, at the core, at the center of that love, is a heart that is broken over the sin that our brother and sister have become entangled in. And Lord, in that brokenness and burden that we feel, we will not ignore them. Just simply pray for them and hope that they will deal with it on their own. But it will compel us to go to them in gentleness and meekness and to bring them back to wholeness. God, help us to love each other that way. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed. Thank you.